The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. And when you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome to the Jill on Money show. It is Monday, May 30th. It is Memorial Day. And this is a special day in the hearts and souls of everybody who is an American because we are honoring the people who've given their lives for us today. And as a result, we thought we would air or re-air an interview that we conducted some time ago with Admiral William McRaven, who wrote a book called Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. Maybe some of you have forgotten, but Admiral McRaven was behind the team of masterminds that located Osama bin Laden and finally did kill him. So we start the interview off talking a little bit about that. Admiral McRaven, who was retired from the U.S. Navy, he was also the chancellor of uh, the University of Texas College and University System. He's a wonderful man. I thought it's just a really good day to, to kind of give you someone from the military. You know, we lost someone in our family in Iraq, so I don't like airing anything that's not particularly sensitive to that part of the of the national history on a day like today. So here is our interview with William McRaven. Describe just a little bit about having to, to present the president with options. Will he then say, Bill, what do you, what's your, what do you think? Or, uh, or do you immediately say, here are your five options. This is what I think you should no, do. No, no. Uh, at least with President Obama, and I, I have not uh, met uh, President Trump, so I can't speak to President Trump. But I'm sure the process is pretty much the same, which, again, the military leaders will come in and they will provide options. Now, if the president says, what is your, you know, your number one option, then they're certainly prepared to provide that. But invariably, there's a dialogue, as there was uh, with President Obama during the, the bin Laden raid. And uh, I can tell you the president, uh, President Obama, asked a lot of good questions, hard questions. What are the risks involved? Uh, what are our chances of success? I mean, these are kind of natural questions that the president will ask the military leaders. And so when President Obama s- asked some of those hard questions, give me an example of some of the, like, what would he have asked? Well, uh, the president always wants to know the risk, uh, the risk to the force. But in the case of the bin Laden raid, uh, President Obama wanted to understand, okay, if, if I agree to this raid, then uh, how much risk will be, what is the, the threat to your men on the ground? 
uh, and how are you going to mitigate mitigate that risk? And so this is part of the plan that any military commander has to bring to a president is, you know, force protection, get the mission done, make sure you're protecting the force as best you can, explain the risks to the president of the United States. And uh, is there ever a time where the president asked you a question and it made you rethink your position? Uh, in the case of the bin Laden yeah. raid, uh, yes. I mean, uh, in in terms of tightening up the planning on the mission, uh, again, I gave the president uh, kind of a broad option. Look, we'll we'll do a helicopter raid. Uh, we'll get on the ground. But if we encounter the Pakistanis, we have this option, this option, or this option. And so the president and and, uh, and myself and, and a number of members of the national security team talked through those and helped refine the plan. Was the bin Laden raid, which obviously it went in, in your direction, um, were there, did you have apprehension about it? No, never. Really? How come? No, because I, I knew what my forces were capable of doing. This was not a terribly complex mission. Uh, it was a long helicopter ride, about 162 miles from Afghanistan into Abbottabad, Pakistan. Uh, but I knew the SEALs were you know, highly trained. They were all combat veterans. The helicopter pilots were all combat veterans. Uh, we had uh, you know, good overhead surveillance. Uh, we had appropriate packages in the event they got into trouble. So we had a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D. Uh, and I was very confident that uh, we could carry out any one of those uh, if we needed to. So, uh, so no, I, I wasn't. Uh, I mean, again, you're always worried about the safety of your troops. Uh, they're they're your men in this case, and I wanted them all to come back safely. But we also wanted to accomplish the mission. I was confident we could do both. And you did it. And we were we were fortunate. Uh, we did it. The guys did it. The guys did it. That's yeah. pretty great. I I don't know why, but like I always think that with uh, and I I told you before we went on the air that I have uh, you know come married into a military family. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always it was striking to me that it never seemed like uh, like our nephew would talk about being fearful. But you have to be afraid in these various missions. What made you afraid in along the way? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, you have to be a little bit scared. Uh, because that's kind of what keeps uh, keeps you on edge and, and keeps you looking for uh, potential uh, problem areas. You know, where are you going to get ambushed? Uh, how's the helicopter going to get from point A to point B? Uh, if you're not scared going into these missions, then you, you probably haven't been on them before. Um, I mean, you ought to have a little bit of heightened sense of anxiety. And I think every operator does. But uh, the flip side of that is you're very well trained. And, and you recognize that your training and the support you have from the other members of uh, your team or the military are going to be there to help you out. So, you know, whatever that apprehension is, uh, I think, again, you can reduce some of that uh, concern by realizing you've got great teammates. All right. So when were you scared? Come on. Come plain here. Besides <laughs> well, I was what? scared a lot. Were you scared walking down the aisle with this lovely lady? Oh, no. That, that part never scared me. That was easy. So what was scary? Like, give me, a, give me an instance where you were like, oh, my God, I am scared. Yeah, you know, for me as a as a commander, again, during Iraq and Afghanistan, I wasn't, you know, a frontline troop. Uh, so I didn't have to go out uh, into combat every day like these, you know, young rangers, uh, young special forces, uh, officers and NCOs, the SEALs, the Delta Force operators, the helicopter pilots, everybody that supported us. I mean, you know, this, this 9-11 generation was in hard combat every day. 
my job was really to ensure we had a kind of a strategic and operational look at it. So uh, most of the time I wasn't in harm's way day in and day out. Now, having said that, you know, I'd try to go out on a, a mission with them about once a month just to make sure, one, they, they saw me as a combat leader that, you know, wasn't afraid to take some risk, wasn't afraid to, you know, endure the hardships that they had to endure. And that's important, I think, for any leader. Uh, having said that, my greatest concerns were always to the troops on the ground because every night uh, we had overhead surveillance. We had predators that we could watch the action unfold in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, when you are back and you are watching these young men sometimes in firefights, um, as good as they are, uh, they're your troops. And so if, if, if I was ever concerned or anxious, it was always about the welfare of the troops uh, more in the middle of a, of a combat situation than, than at any other time. Now to kind of shift gears. In okay. 2014, 14. you're delivering a commencement speech at the University of Texas, right? Right. And first of all, how did that come about? Who, who asked you to do that? Well, the president uh, of the university, Bill Powers, uh, asked me uh, to come do the commencement speech at my alma mater, uh, the University of Texas at Austin, and, uh, and I was thrilled to have the opportunity to do it. Uh, and it, uh, it it turned out to be just a you know fantastic night in Austin in May, uh, and and uh, you know eight thousand students and about uh, twenty thousand of their parents and best friends. Uh, it was a great evening. And from that commencement speech comes this slim, elegant, and really terrific book Thanks. called Make Your Bed. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room. And the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough battle-hardened seals, but the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made. <laughs> that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. Let's start with why you wanted to turn. First of all, by the way, everyone go and check out the speech because it's been downloaded 10 million times, something to that effect. But what made you want to turn into a book? You know, every day, uh, literally every single day since the speech, Saturdays and Sundays included, somebody comes up to me and says, I make my bed. Or, you know, I don't ring the bell. Or I don't back down from the sharks. Um, but after they tell me that, then they always ask me, what was it that inspired you? You know, tell me about your experience as a sugar cookie. Tell me about uh, how you, you know, didn't back down. Or who were the people that inspired you? 
And, you know, for several years, I, I was just busy, didn't have time to do it, and finally had an opportunity to, it's a small gift book, uh, but I think it has broad appeal. Uh, this is not just a book for commencement. I, I think it's a book for anybody that goes through life that has to deal with, with failures, that has, um, you know, great dark moments in life that they have to overcome. Um, so the book was really about uh, people that inspired me. And let's just start with uh, the number one, which is the title of the book, Make Your Bed. Why is making your bed so important? Well, you know, at least uh, when I was being raised, my father was an Air Force officer and my uh, my mother was a school teacher in Texas. And, uh, and my mother ensured, more so than my father, that I made my bed every day. But as a young kid, you don't really understand why other than your mom wanted you to make your bed. When I got the SEAL training, uh, it was something that the SEAL instructors came in and inspected every day. And I didn't really understand it at first. Look, we're, we're here to be, you know, real SEAL warriors. Why are we worried about making our bed? And, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have this epiphany, which is they recognize that it was kind of the first task of the day. And, uh, and if you start off your day right by taking a little pride and making your bed, it's a simple task. And if you do it well, then other tasks will come and then you'll complete the next task. And, and so it's kind of the first rung on the ladder in the course of your day. But the other thing about making your bed is it shows that if you do the little things well, then maybe you can do the, the bigger things well. And the SEAL instructors would make sure if you can't make your bed, if you can't make those hospital corners right, if you don't know how to put your you know, wool blanket at the foot of the bed, if you can't take the time to make your bed correctly, how will you ever be a good SEAL running a, an important mission? So learn to do the little things right, and then that'll help you do the big things right. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell. A brass bell that hangs in the center of the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do to quit, all you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell and you no longer have to wake up at five o'clock. Ring the bell and you no longer have to be in the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. Is there something about SEAL training that is different than any other part of the military? What's the, what, what differentiates the SEAL from, you know, the guy who's in the Army? Like, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I will tell you, I think a lot of, almost all the Special Forces training uh, are similar uh, in terms of, you know, there's a selection process where, you know, you're looking for, in, in my case, they were all men. Uh, you're looking for men that you think are going to make it through training. Uh, you're trying to ensure that they have kind of the, the right stuff. All of the Special Forces training, the Ranger training, the SEAL training, I would say the, the thing that differentiates SEAL training is obviously the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a, a lot of uh, my great uh, Army brethren, um, you know, didn't like the part about being cold, wet, and miserable. Mm. That doesn't make them any less tough. Let me tell you, I have seen some of the toughest men I've seen are Army Rangers and Army Green Berets, and, uh, and uh, we like to think SEAL training is the toughest military training out there. Uh, but I think uh, all of them stack up as being pretty tough. Yeah, it would seem so. Um, so one of the other pieces of this, and as you go through and you give the the little things that can change your life, you do talk about um, making sure that you have good teammates right. and, and find someone to help you paddle. In, in the book also, you give some great examples in your own life. But I'm just wondering, like, in your not just career, but in your life, 
talk a little bit about the reliance on others, that team-based approach, because I do feel a tiny bit like sometimes that's lost in this current culture where everyone's sort of sitting alone at a screen, feeling disconnected. How do those connections really foster success? Well, I talked a, a little bit about it in the speech, and then I, I kind of cull it out a little bit in the book. Uh, but when you go through SEAL training, you're giving what we refer to as an inflatable boat small. It's uh, about an 8 to 10-foot little raft, rubber raft, and you carry it everywhere you go. And the purpose of carrying the raft, it's a seven-man boat crew, uh, but the purpose of, of carrying it isn't just to carry the boat. It's to recognize that if you're going to get the boat from point A to point B, Everybody has to work together as a team. And I don't care whether you're the officer or the junior enlisted guy. If you don't paddle the way you're supposed to paddle, if you don't you know, stroke hard, if, if everybody doesn't dig in, then the boat won't get to where it needs to get to. And, and so the recognition as you go through SEAL training that you, know, you better be a good teammate first. We're called the SEAL teams for a reason. And in fact, when you meet another guy in the SEAL teams, you say, hey, are you in the teams? And so this concept of being a team, everybody having a role to play for you to be successful is important. Um, and then in the book, I talk about the fact that uh, you know, I had a parachute accident uh, back in, in 2001. Up to that point in my career, um, yeah, I, I thought, uh, like a lot of SEALs, that maybe I was a little invincible. I'd, been, uh, I'd had some, uh, some life... Uh, life-threatening situations uh, in the air, uh, underwater, and other places, and I'd always managed to get out of it, but not this time. And so I got pretty banged up in, uh, in a, a free-fall parachute jump, and frankly, I thought my career was over. Uh, I was banged up that badly, but, but fortunately, uh, I had a lot of folks, uh, my wife in particular, but my boss, uh, Admiral Eric Olson, uh, friends came by to see me, uh, you know, wished me well, helped me with my therapy, uh, my physical therapy. Uh, and I would never be where I am today were it not for the fact that everybody came together to help me through that tough event in my life. How did that change you going forward when you actually did get injured? Did you, did you change? Did your mindset change about how you approached what you did or how you approached others? I think, you know, up to that point in time, I always recognized the value of, of team. Um, but I was never the individual that kind of needed the help uh, in terms of the, the other team helping me. Uh, that was a point in time where I went, I'm just as vulnerable as everybody else. You know, life can be very, very fragile. I mean, I realized that once again, you know, my, my life was, uh, was spared and it, was, it all happened in, the, in an instant. I'd had a number of those in my career leading up to the parachute accident. But again, I, I'd always managed to do the right thing and gotten out of it. Now, all of a sudden, I'm badly injured um, and, and realize that, wow, moving forward, this is easier than I thought in terms of the potential to get injured. So after 9-11, this occurred before 9-11. After 9-11, as I watched uh, my soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines and others and saw the, the, um, the wounds that they suffered, you realize that uh, you needed to be in a position, I needed to be in a position to help them, other people needed to be in a position to help them, uh, because we all need people to help us get through life. That life's not fair um, yep. is something that seems to have quite a bit of resonance in, a, in your world, because unfair things happen all um, the time. You bet. And how do you get through those unfair things? Yeah, you know, again, uh, when we were going through training, uh, the... Um, there were a lot of folks that felt, you know, if they were the best runner that day, then they would be rewarded for that. Uh, if they had the best uniform, they would be rewarded for that. There was this sense of, if I perform well, 
everything's going to fall into place. But it didn't. Right. And and the this concept of being a sugar cookie, as I refer to in, in the chapter, a uh, sugar cookie was you, an instructor would just arbitrarily say, uh, you know, McRaven, hit the surf. You had to hit the surf, uh, you know, get, get all wet, then roll around in the sand. And so you're covered head to toe in, in sand. And, you know, there, there was a time when you said, why? I, you know, I, my uniform looked good. Everything was great. Mm-hmm. I should be rewarded for that. And the point was, sorry, life isn't fair. You're, you're not always going to be rewarded for things. And so this understanding as you go through life that, uh, you know, uh, life isn't fair. You have to get over it. And you can't spend your time, you know, blaming your parents or br- blaming your circumstances or blaming your bosses. Life's not fair. Um, but if you if you press on, if you accept the fact that every once in a while things are going to just go, you know, not go your way, get over it and move on. And does that mean, though, as as a boss, because you're sure. a boss of a lot of people, that um, that you don't? I mean, really bad things happen. That's one thing. Right. But like when somewhat bad things, do you, are you, are you hardened to that? In other words, I don't know. Like I, I'm feeling like in the military, that's a lesson. Like, of course, you have to move on. Like we have a mission here. But in an organization, like you know, I'm working at CBS, and like, oh, a story gets killed. Life's not fair. Move on. And you know, like you've just spent hours and hours right. doing this. And it is true. But do you get to sit on your pity pot for like five minutes? Yeah, <laughs> probably. Every, everybody does for a few minutes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's that's just human nature. Uh, but the point is, don't sit on it for too long. Yeah. Uh, like I said, uh, sometimes you, you bust your tail and things just don't work out well. Can you talk a little bit about failure? Because I never associate... Um like I guess military and failure as in you know like where how you come through that because sure. I feel like sometimes failure is it's you know can result in the loss of life and injury right. and like so how do you come on the other side of that that's a much more difficult thing than saying oh well life's unfair failure is right. big deal failure is big deal particularly in a combat situation uh, and you know fortunately by the time and uh, I was in combat after 9/11. I was a pretty seasoned SEAL officer. I'd been in about 26 years, and and I've had a I'd had a number of failures, not not combat related, but uh, you know a number of failures in my career. And you know you do the best to show that uh, you're better than your failure. But when it comes to combat, uh, your failures can in fact result in in the deaths of uh, civilians, unfortunately, and and some of your soldiers. Um, but but what you have to realize is you have to learn from your mistakes, uh, and particularly in combat, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, combat moves at a pace that, uh, that you don't control sometimes. We always say that the enemy has a vote, so you can build a great plan, uh, but the enemy may not react the way you expected, and unfortunately, you know, every once in a while, you'll lose guys. But a good combat leader recognizes that you, know, you can't sit on your pity pot too long. Uh, you have to say, what did I learn from that? How are we going to do better next time? But you have to be prepared to make the next tough decision as a combat leader. Mm. And, uh, and I think the difference between a great combat leader and a good combat leader is the great ones uh, overcome failure as quickly as possible. They learn from it, and then they make the next tough decision. Because if you're not prepared to make the next tough decision then you're going to lose more young men and women. And so that's the important thing to recognize in combat. Who inspired you in your career? Oh, a lot of people uh, inspire me uh, in my career. But I'll tell you, invariably, uh, probably not uh, who people think. The, the kids that inspired me were the 
the young soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines I, I met, the ones that had families uh, with kids, and you'd watch these, uh, you know, young soldiers uh, go overseas and come back, and then, you know, eight months later, they're back overseas again, and they do it year after year after year, and the wife stays at home and takes care of the kids, uh, or the husband stays at home, in some cases, and takes care of the kids as the wife is forward. Um, I mean, these are the the men and women that I think are truly inspiring. And, and they don't, you know, nobody writes books about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're not going to have any monuments uh, built to them, but they are, you know, the, the American soldier. And so, you know, they're what's really inspiring. What don't we civilians really understand about the military life? What are some of the things we just don't get and we could never get? Well, I don't know that uh, you could never get it, but, you know, the military life is, uh, is a life of sacrifice. You don't go into the military. A lot of people say, well, why'd you go into the military? And people will say, well, to, to serve my country. And, and certainly people want to serve their country. But most young men and women that go into the military, I think initially there's this kind of sense of a challenge. You know, I want to make it through basic training. Or I want to make it through SEAL training or Ranger training. And then there's a little sense of adventure. You go from a challenge to an adventure, and now, you know, you're in the SEALs, and in my case, you know, you're traveling around the world, you're jumping out of airplanes, you're locking out of submarines, you have this adventure, and then at some point in time in your career, it kind of becomes a profession. But then after that, it becomes a calling. And and that's really kind of when you hit your peak. For me, the calling really came after 9-11. What I saw with the young men and women that came in right after 9-11 was, you know, they jumped, uh, you know, my 26 years, and, and within a short period of time, they had gone from the challenge, the adventure, the profession to a calling. And that calling required sacrifice. Um, and so I, it's just hard to appreciate the sacrifice of these young soldiers day in and day out going on combat missions, uh, year after year deploying, uh, every couple of years moving uh, their family from one geographic location to the next, and now their kids have got to make uh, new friends in school. Um, I mean, these are the sacrifices, but I will tell you, you know, uh, almost any soldier you talk to will tell you that uh, they are happy uh, to sacrifice that, uh, that uh, they love the job they're doing, they're proud to serve this nation, and, uh, and so we're happy to bear that, uh, bear that burden and, and bear that sacrifice. You talk about rising to the occasion, and I feel like, you know, you're, you're in this dangerous place, and you're trained in a certain way, you are going to rise to the occasion, but... How do civilians rise to the occasion in your lives? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, you know, sometimes I think it's just something deep, deep inside that comes up when a dark moment occurs. I don't know that you can plan for it. I don't know that you can prepare for it. I don't know that even the the soldiers I've met fully prepare for it. You know, when you lose a loved one, I don't care whether you lose them on the battlefield or you lose them in a car accident or they die of cancer. Um you know, you find out really who you are in those dark moments. And I think we all have it inside us. And and the point of the book is, you know, you don't have to be a, a superhero to rise to the occasion. Um, but, you know, dig deep. It, it's in there. Um, and the people around you are going to need you to rise to that occasion when bad things happen. Uh, so, you know, th- this is more of... Um, of of a hope that people that read the book will realize that they have it within themselves uh, to be this person when difficult things happen. In your career, as you look back, were you able to identify people who you said, that guy, that woman, that's a leader? Absolutely. Be- easily? Pretty easily. Yeah. And what are some of those attributes that would make you poised to be a leader? Yeah, they are generally people persons. You know, they... Uh, 
they understand how to build a team, as we, we talked about. Uh, they recognize that it's not about them. They are kind of a, a servant leader. I mean, I think the great leaders are servant leaders. Um, you know, I, I love this saying from, from Pope Francis that, you know, uh, a shepherd should smell like his sheep. And I, I think, you know, we have learned that in the military that great leaders are the ones that are out with the troops. And I don't care whether you're a non-commissioned officer, uh, you know, to be a great leader, you've got to be out. You've got to suffer the hardships. You have to you have to lead from the front, as we say. Sometimes leading from the front is literally jumping out of the airplane first. Sometimes leading from the front is being the last in the chow line to get chow. Um, but leading from the front means setting the example and, and, and doing the difficult things. You don't have to be the best at everything. In fact, great leaders are rarely the best at everything. But they've got to respect the people that work for them. Uh, they've, got to, they've got to be able to build the team around them. And, and you can see that pretty quickly. I mean, there are some folks that are a little too full of themselves, that uh, think they always have the right plan, uh, that they're the smartest man or woman in the room. Uh, those people you have to be a little bit careful of. Now, every once in a while, they turn out to be great leaders as well. But I tell you, more times than not, it's that man or woman who knows how to build a team, who is the servant leader, who respects the people that work for them, uh, and who sets the example and does things that are moral, legal, and ethical. When you look at, say, corporate America now, and you maybe read stories in the papers about this CEO does this or right. this malfeasance of that, uh, I, I can only imagine that somebody like you, a true leader who's selfless in many ways, uh, you know, that that really must pain you in some ways to, to, to read stories or hear things like that. Well, you know, we're not perfect in the military, but I think as an organization, we work hard to instill the right values in people. And, and I think most of uh, the men and women I've worked uh, with in the military uh, adhere to those values. But, you know, again, I have one litmus test for every decision we make. And as I said, you have to do things that are moral, legal and ethical. And if your decision, you know, you know passes that litmus test, then it's probably a good decision. And most leaders know when things aren't moral, legal, or ethical. It's not always easy to be good, though. Um, you know, the circumstances that swirl around you sometimes where not, nobody's perfect. Uh, and again, we're going to make mistakes. And sometimes as hard as you try to be moral, legal, and ethical, it doesn't work out. And, you, you know, you're, we talk about your integrity being the most important thing, but, but frankly, you're the only one that can lose your integrity. And it happens sometimes. Um, again, that's, that's a time when you just have to say, look, I made a mistake. Uh, I'm, I'm going to figure out how to do better next time and, and move on. Now that you are out of the military and like in academia, which is a whole nother universe. I love it. How has the transition been? Transition's been great. Uh, you know, I'm used to running a large organization. So in my role as the chancellor of the University of Texas system, I'm, I'm the CEO over these 14 institutions. And uh, we were talking before the beginning of the broadcast about uh, UT Austin. But of course, that, that is our flagship, but it is hardly the only institution. We have eight academic institutions and then, then six uh, health-related institutions. And we've got six medical schools. Uh, but I got to tell you, the, the best thing about the job is look at these, you know, first in family to go to college. Uh, we have a large Hispanic population in Texas and, uh, and down at uh, UT Rio Grande Valley and, and University of Texas El Paso and UT San Antonio. You see these kids that are the first in their family ever to go to school. And you realize they have just changed the entire trajectory 
of their family forever because you know what statistics show is if you go to college chances are very high your kids are going to go to college and their kids are going to go to college and everything about going to college you know frankly makes you a better person uh, i mean statistically speaking you know not only do you make more money but you're less likely to be racist and bigoted and you're you're going to be healthier i mean everything about spending time on a college campus is actually good for human beings. Well, thank you so much for listening. And we are very, very proud to have had General McRaven on the program. We're also proud that we have so many listeners who are part of the armed forces, whether they're currently serving or retired. And if you've got a question, we are happy to answer it. And maybe we'll give we I think we probably do give the um, the military folks. It's sort of like the boarding of an airplane. I think we do tend to give them a little bit of a way to leap the uh, line just because that's what we do. Do me a favor today. If you know anyone who serves in the military, just reach out because that would be a nice thing to lift someone up in that world especially on a day like today. And we want to thank you so much for listening. Grit, growth, grace, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. 